Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles people who are passionate about what they do for a living, what organization they belong to, or the community they are a part of. Here is your host, Dave Cunningham. Thank you, Steve. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Okay, let's talk about the Canadian Great Lakes, all the great communities along the shorelines, the incredible shipwrecks underwater, all that history, and Vicki Keith. Let's talk about her career as a marathon swimmer, 16 world records, including being the first to have swum across all five Great Lakes in 61 days back in 1988. But coaching has been another passion, working with youth who have physical disabilities and their able-bodied siblings. We're very pleased to have her as our guest in this episode. Welcome, Vicki. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Let me take a minute to remind the folks listening that we are recording this episode in mid-September 2022. So being an athlete for a good chunk of your life, let's go back to the very beginning as a kid and talk about some of the sports you started taking up when you were a kid and how you dealt with that and how you succeeded or not with some of those sports. Well, I think people, most people who knew me as a young person would have not agreed with you that I was an athlete. Um, my, my first experiences in activity was I wanted to be in dance. My mother had been a very talented ballet dancer and I wanted to follow in her footsteps. But at my very first recital, the teacher stood up and spoke to my mother and said, your daughter walks like a horse. <laughs> and I remember being horrified. Like I had been picked out for something that I wasn't good at. And it was the first time that I really realized that I couldn't do anything. I thought that the world was open to me and I could achieve anything. So I went on to look at, at other sports, try different things. I was the last picked for, for every team I ever tried um, until I finally found a sport that I loved. And it, that was judo. And I could throw someone down on the ground, hold them down on the ground. They'd give up and I'd win. <laughs> and I figured out if I keep on fighting, something else will fall through. And then I found swimming and it kept me along this path. And, and I started to, to believe again that anything was possible. Now, at some particular point, you're trying to figure out how you're going to work swimming in. And you were sort of, I think you woke up in the middle of the night with an idea. How did that come about? Well, I was... Um, I, I always was searching, what could I do? What is my purpose in life? It was just, I just knew I had to have some reason. And um, I also love sport. And I remembered, I remember um, thinking about competitive swimming as the, as my possible direction of, of success until I watched the Olympics and realized that I was nowhere close to their abilities. But one night in the middle of the night, I was lying in bed, sound asleep, and my brain took two activities that I did love. I loved competitive swimming. I actually loved long distance running as well. And my brain put these two sports together and came up with long distance swimming. And I got out of bed in the middle of the night, pulled my Guinness Book of World Records off the shelf, <laughs> turned past competitive swimming. And there was all these open water swimming records. And I read them over and over and over again all night long. And I went to school the next day telling my friends, someday I'm going to be a great marathon swimmer. Now, I procrastinated for a few years before that, until then. How would you have figured out going through the Book of World Records that you could beat some of those times that were in there? Well, the competitive swimming was, was really challenging, and I didn't have a perspective. But when I looked at open water swimming, there were, there were swims that 
I was I was more mature by then and, and understanding that there were possibilities. And there was one record in there and it was 12 miles butterfly. And I thought 12 miles, I can do that. I didn't even consider the butterfly. I just figured I'd, I'd figure that part along the way. But it was, it was, it, it, it just, it just spoke to me. It was just something that just seemed possible to me. Now, how did you set your first goal when you decided to become a marathon swimmer? Well, I talked, I talked about it. I saw this record, 12 miles butterfly. I talked about it a lot. I told everybody I was going to do it, but I never actually took any action towards it. I had no idea where do you start on a journey like this. And um, I talked to my friends. I talked to anybody that would listen. And finally, one person said, shut up and do it. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? He says, you've talked about this forever. It's time for you to get in the water, get busy and do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it next year. And, and he said, no, 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 this year. And so I, I started to train. Um, I'd been training all along, but I started to focus my, focus my training. Um, I got in the water, and with three months, I'd set two world records. I'd swung 12 miles butterfly along the shoreline in Kingston, and I'd swung for 100 hours continuously because that was the next easiest record uh, that I saw in the Guinness Book. 100 hours continuously. I can't fathom that for some reason. <laughs> That just seems like an incredible feat. How? What year was this when you did that? Do you remember? Uh, it would have been, I think, 84, 1984, 1985, in that range anyway. Mm. And uh, it, it, nobody thought it was possible. I had one person bet me a nickel that I couldn't do it. Uh, and he just, he, nobody thought that it could be done. And I just didn't understand why it couldn't be done. If you don't stop, you end up getting there. And that was the message that I learned in judo, and I carried it through. He bet you a nickel? I still have the nickel. <laughs> okay, so let's move along a little bit. And so you're starting to get really serious about this and swimming and, and looking at different goals to try to accomplish. So let's talk about planning for a marathon swim. So if we are talking about eating, so there's the food that you eat to prepare yourselves before yourself before you get in the water and there's the food that you need to eat when you're in the water if you're swimming 50 60 80 100 hours of swimming so how do what kind of food are you eating before you jump in the water well it, it obviously has changed over time uh the recommendations have changed i remember when i was first an athlete it was drink a bottle of corn syrup before you do your activity and, and, like corn and then syrup. it changed <laughs> a bit much and, and then it was eat a steak the night before. And then it was eat carbohydrates. And this is no wait. Don't eat carbohydrates for two weeks and then eat carbs. So it, it all just kept on changing and growing and building. Uh, but what it came down to was use good common sense, eat well-balanced meals. Um, and then when I got into open water swimming, it was a matter of learning that whole process because it wasn't a thing. People didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, when I did my first swim, the 12 miles butterfly, I didn't even know if I was allowed to stop and eat. And so I swam eight miles butterfly and decided I needed something. I treaded water, ate a barley sugar candy and a can of apple juice and kept on going. Later, I found out that there are rules that yeah. you are allowed to stop and eat. And so um, I would figure out things that worked for me. I was often cold, so I wanted warm foods. So chicken noodle soup, mushroom soup. Um, I needed something that would settle my stomach. So arrowroot cookies. I needed a natural sugar, so I would use the fruit cups. Um, I craved hamburgers. So every <laughs> once in a while. 
Like, is this a normal craving for you or is it just when you're in the world? I love hamburgers. Yeah. But especially any food you can eat with your hands. Right. (laughs) Um, But in the middle of the double crossing, when I walked up on shore, there was a Big Mac waiting for me. And I took a couple of bites and kept on, I turned around and swam back treading water, finishing off my hamburger before I, before I uh, continued swimming across the, the second crossing of the lake. Well, at least if you if you love hamburgers and you're in the water having a hamburger, you don't have to worry about not having napkins. Oh no! Turn your hands up. Exactly. No. Let's talk about some of the swims that you did do. Any particular two or three swims that you were particularly uh, excited about, or you really well? I guess you can't say you really enjoyed them uh, from the perspective of having to be there a long time, but challenging i guess anything stand out in your memory of some of the big swims that you've done so there are always parts of a swim to enjoy there's there's yeah. monotonous parts there's challenging parts there's painful parts um but when i look back the great lake summer being able to do what everybody told me was impossible and raising uh over five hundred and forty-eight thousand dollars um made that swim very close to my heart um, the Juan de Fuca, I swam at Butterfly. The Juan de Fuca water temperature is between 8 and 10 degrees Celsius. Life expectancy is an hour and a half. It took me 14 hours to complete that swim. When I look back on that, um, I'm, I'm in awe that I was able to continue forward uh, with all that I faced. And Where is the Juan de Fuca straight? The Juan, the Juan de Fuca is between, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, between Washington State and Vancouver Island. Okay. Um, and then in, in 2005, I swam 80.2 kilometers butterfly in Lake Ontario. And again, this was deemed impossible. You cannot swim that far. Many people have tried to beat that since then. They've not been successful. Um, and I think that one, because it was my last one, because it took me two attempts at it, because the first time I wasn't successful because of the conditions, but also each swim provides different lessons and messages and in that swim i learned never make a life-altering decision when you're at your emotional lowest work through that time wait till you're in a positive frame of mind or a more positive frame of mind and then make the decisions when you're in a better position um so for me that is a message i've been able to take on my own journey but also with other people and so that, uh, I, I think that's why I, I'm, I'm close to that swim as well. I'm not a swimmer, but if I watch people swimming on television or in a pool or something like that, I would suggest that the butterfly is probably the most difficult swim because it would take a lot of energy. Am I right in that? That's why it was de- deemed uh, impossible. Butterfly is not considered a long distance swim. It's not considered an open water swim uh, stroke. But um, that's why I chose it. I'd been told it was impossible. That it was impossible to swim the English Channel butterfly. It was impossible to do the Wanda Fuqua butterfly. There was all these reasons why something can't be done. Mm-hmm. And as soon as somebody brings something to me and tells me it's impossible, I have to prove them wrong. It's not even a, a want. It's, it's I have this incredible need to show people that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. When you are swimming in open water like that, and you have to make a decision that this is not going to happen because of the weather conditions, because of the water, what are we talking about in terms of waves that you simply can't get through, if that's the expression? Well, and it's not 
necessarily that you can't get through them. It's wise and what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. in the double crossing of Lake Ontario, I started out with three meter swells with the chalk on top of it. That's not desirable. Um, I remember being at the peak of the wave and looking down at the deck of the sailboat beside me. Um, but we had a forecast. The forecast predicted that those winds would diminish. And I was being pushed down the lake sideways, but it wasn't impacting my forward motion as much. Mm -hmm. In the 80-kilometer butterfly, my first attempt, I was being pushed down the lake because of the direction of the waves in such a way that I was being pushed away from the direction that, um, that I needed to go. And it was going to add huge distance. But also, the majority of my crew members were seasick because of the angle of the waves. Mm -hmm. So therefore, my crew was not healthy or safe, and we were at the very beginning of a swim. We were we were uh, when it first hit, or when we first really struggled. We were about sixteen hours in to a two and a half three day swim. So it's it's making decisions, and I've always taken the responsibility to make, make the decisions myself, unless it had to be made by somebody else. But in this situation, it was no one is safe here, and we're creating an environment where. I'm not going to be successful. So the wisest thing to do is to is to readjust, uh, rebuild, and start again. So in that swim, I got out of the water uh, at sunrise, and less than seven days later, I was back in the water with a slightly different route to be sure that my crew had the safety aspects they needed, but that I was facing the same kind of challenges I, I had faced in the original attempt. That brings up a point that I, I don't think uh, I had thought to ask, but I'm thinking of it now is when you do one of these swims that goes on for hours and hours and hours, what's the recovery period for you when you get out of the water after these races? Like, how you know, so, do you just lie in bed for three days or to recuperate or what? Uh, so let's talk about the 80 kilometer butterfly. Yeah. Um, I finished that at about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, we had pizza, talked to the crew, went to a hotel room, and I slept that night in quite a bit of pain because every muscle in my body was was sore. Uh, woke up about 5.30 in the morning and media were asking for interviews. So I got up and I went into interviews all day. Although the media that had been on the swim were still sleeping. Yeah. Um, I went that night to... Um, a fire meeting because I was a volunteer firefighter and I knew that, that the guys on the team would hassle me if I didn't show up. So I showed up and I of course couldn't move. Um, but I, I was there, but at the same time, every time I closed my eyes for longer than a blink, I was immediately into REM activity. I immediately fell asleep every time my eyes closed and that lasted a couple of weeks. I was, I, I had pushed my body to that extent. It was a 63 hour and 40 minute swim. Um, so I had pushed myself to an extreme and it was actually about three months before I was truly feeling back to full health for me. I wasn't, I wasn't requiring extra sleep. I was, I wasn't exhausted. My brain was engaged in a, in a bit, little bit more positive way because you just, you just stop even being able to make decisions at some point. You're so exhausted. Mm -hmm. If you compare, um, I guess, normal uh, competitive swimming in a pool, for instance, with what you do as marathon swimmer. Is there any particular muscle group that, that's different one to the other? Like, do you need stronger arms if you're doing marathon swimming or legs? Or is it about the same, just they're used differently? I think it depends on the athlete. 
Mm-hmm. Um, kicking in competitive swimming is incredibly important um, if you have a propulsive kick. So I coach athletes with disabilities. Some of them don't have a propulsive kick. So obviously we don't focus on that. Yeah. But for an able-bodied athlete, kick is very important. In open water swimming, if you're going for a speed record, it's probably very important. Um, I actually have a two-beat kick that's slow and powerful to help with the balance. But I chose to focus on my upper body so that I wasn't, I was resting my body, my, myself as much as possible. And there would be times where I'd switch off and up and use my legs. I, I trained fully, but it was, what does my body need for me to be successful? Um, my goal in training, uh, and I was using heart rate long before most, I think, coaches were. My goal in training was to maintain a heart rate um, below 60, if I could. So it some sorry, below 70, if I could. So 68, 64. Um, so my, what I tried to do was keep my, bo- keep my body moving as strongly forward with as low as heart rate. And so mm-hmm. I trained to find the most efficient stroke I could have and balance that out to what my heart rate was to the speed I was able to do. And I finally found that I could ha- hold my heart rate low and swim just over two miles an hour. Which, of course, is impacted later on by uh, stop for a feeding break or exhaustion or tight muscles or waves or anything. But yeah. as a rule, I swam two miles an hour. When you were swimming, preference between salt water and fresh water? <laughs> um, there's a lot of creatures in salt water that you do not want to meet, but you're also more buoyant in salt water. Um, Let's talk I about the more- friends you don't want to meet. <laughs> I had a shark swim underneath me in the Catalina Channel in California. I ran into Medusa jellyfish in the English Channel and had huge welts on my arms and my legs uh, from that experience. Um, I was never a huge fan of swimming at night in fresh water until after my salt water experiences. And then I realized it was just beautiful swimming in fresh water because you don't have anything to worry about. There's nothing scary in, in, uh, well, there's nothing, no wildlife that's scary in our freshwater. So what are you thinking when you notice that there's a shark underneath you? Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing it and it was just this shadow going underneath yeah. me and it was close enough that I could touch it. I didn't, right. but, yeah. <laughs> but I, but when my head came out of the water, swimming butterfly, I yelled, get the light over here. And I took two more strokes. I didn't change anything else I was doing. I yelled, get the light over here. And by the time the light had switched over, I saw the shark leaving. And mm-hmm. I thought, there's no point in getting out of the water. He's gone now. Positive thinking, for sure. Yep. <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about volunteering. I gather this is something that you have done long before you were a marathon swimmer. Yes, my parents... Um, felt it was really important that we give back to our community. So by the time I was 10 years old, I was volunteering at my local Y in Ottawa. And I had the opportunity to to work within swimming lessons because I I love to swim. But I used to remember working with one young boy who was dependent on his wheelchair on land, but I became responsible for him in the water because the classes then were like 19 or 20 kids per class. And so I remember lifting him into the water and seeing his eyes light up and the smile on his face and understanding that water to him was freedom. 
And I think that that one moment brought me through my whole career and what became the most important to me. But I've spent my entire life volunteering in one way or another um, because I think you can't do anything more important or uh, than, than give back to your community and make a positive impact in other people's lives. Now, was it that particular instance uh, working with that young lad who was in the wheelchair that sort of prompted you to focus on working with people with disabilities? Physical disabilities? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I, I've worked with, with young people with all sorts of uh, different challenges. Um, and he, he is where it started. But I, I, I um, spent a lot of time working with young people who are autistic. I spent some time with uh, young people who have intellectual impairments. And I enjoyed them all. But the greatest challenge for me was working with young people with physical disabilities and learning how to guide them to be successful and understanding each of their individual bodies, how they work and helping them become successful. So that's where my, my, where my path started, but it, it, it did take me to what I do today as, as a swim coach for athletes with disabilities. Now I gather when you started down this particular road, you were also working with their able-bodied siblings as well to bring them together, I gather. What was the motivation behind doing those two groups? Um, well, that's when I started the, uh, the Kingston Y Penguins and in Kingston, Ontario, um, I started it because I wanted to create something unique. And I had been at Variety Village in Toronto and had worked with young people with disabilities there. But I found that there was almost always a barrier between the able-bodied athletes and the athletes with disabilities. And partly just because of their ability just to decide they were going to go to a mall and go there where a, a person with a disability would have a, a number of, of or things to organize before they were able to do that. So I wanted to create an environment where everybody understood what it was like to be a person with a disability or a sibling. And I think that that really made um, a big impact. I, I, one of my favorite stories is, is a young man uh, using a walker, walking down the pool deck with his able-bodied peer beside him. They get to the door, they're, they're, the able-bodied peer grabs the door, they walk through. The conversation, which was about hockey, never changed or stopped. The able-bodied person didn't stop and think, oh, I have to help him. It was a natural action because this child had a sibling who had a disability. And that spoke to me more than anything else. Is, is We want to create a, a world where it's so completely inclusive that people are all all of one mm -hmm. world. Talk about the uh, Kingston Y Penguins. Uh, the Kingston Y Penguins, I started them in 2001. I coached them until uh, until the pandemic hit. We still managed to go through the pandemic uh, swimming sometimes. Um, but I brought another coach in to assist me at that point because uh, two months before the pandemic started, my husband was diagnosed with a devastating illness. So I needed somebody to to back me up on that program if I needed to be with my mm -hmm. husband. Uh, at the end of the pandemic, I became aware Variety Village needed a coach and someone to help build their para program again. So the coach that I had brought into the Kingston Y Penguins became the head coach of that team. Now, the exciting thing about that coach is he's a past Y Penguin. He lives with a physical disability. He has an auditory challenge and he's, he's legally blind. And we were able to work together to figure out ways for him to be a successful coach in all aspects of, of that team. 
Uh, and I think that that speaks to what is possible and what we need to be aware of what others can do in our world. There's a competitive aspect to what you do with the penguins as well, or what you did do with the penguins, right? They participate in various yes. races and things like that. Yeah. The, um, the, the Kingston white penguins not only hosted their own meet every year, but they also attended a number of meets. We had athletes compete at the age group level, both the, the athletes with disabilities and their able-bodied siblings. We had athletes make regionals, provincials, nationals, and we had a number of athletes make international meets. Um, we had one Paralympian, Abby Tripp, uh, but we also had a number of athletes swim, uh, do open water swims. Um, most people would, uh, would remember uh, Jenna Lambert, who was an athlete with a physical disability who swam across Lake Ontario, and her sister, Natalie, who, um, amongst a number of things, also swam, but was the first person to swim butterfly across uh, Lake Erie. So we, had, we have a huge history of, of understanding that anything is possible uh, and just figuring out the paths that athletes need to take to achieve what they want. Can you describe the, the mindset of somebody like uh, Abby Tripp or Jenna Lambert who start off in your program and find themselves competing internationally at, at the other end of that spectrum. What do they go through as they are learning these skills and you know, getting their, uh, their ambitions and their expectations built into their mind as to what they can do? Well, I think, I think I'll address Abby. Abby, when, she, when I first met her, was six years old and she was doing a little mini triathlon, the kids' deal. Um, so she, she swam with a life jacket, uh, rode a bike with, uh, with training wheels and then had her, her orthotics, her ankle foot orthotics placed like braces on her legs and she did her little run. Um, I talked to her mom and within a year she was on the team. And I remember the first time, uh, the first practice, she sat on the edge of the pool and she started to cry. And I said, Abby, what's wrong? And she said, I'm not crying because I'm afraid. I'm afraid and I can't make myself do it. And I'm crying because I can't make myself do it. And I thought, this is what an incredible mm -hmm. insight for a young lady. Um, and, but then once she got over that fear, you could see this fierceness inside of her, this desire. And, you know, by the time she was 10 years old, she everything she, she drew was an image of the Paralympic logo or, or where she wanted to go. Everything was about sport. And, it was, it was just one step at a time um, and truly working in a partnership. It's not a coach and an athlete, and the, the coach telling the athlete what to do, the athlete doing it. it, especially because it's Abby's body. And Abby's body was changing over time and what it was able to do. And we would have to continually change her stroke, change her technique, change her race strategies to match what her body was able to do. So it was a true partnership. Uh, between an athlete and a coach to help her get where she wants to go. So Abby now has, is a Paralympic athlete. She's, she's won medals on the international stage. She's headed off um, to university in Quebec City and, uh, and is now swimming with the University of Laval. So she's, she's gone an incredible journey. Um, when you talk about being a coach, and you just talked about some of the things that you do when you work with an athlete. How does being a coach for an individual differ in your mind from being the coach of a team, like say a hockey team or a football team, where you have a whole pile of people that have to work together to achieve one common goal? Is there a difference in your mind? Well, I think it's interesting. I think that, that swimming 
is a team sport because we are training together. Uh, but we aren't a team sport like hockey where everybody's performance is dependent on somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not skilled at a, a team environment where other people are responsible for me, partly because of my history, because I was last picked for every team. I never knew how to play on a team. But when I went to, uh, a, to, be, to a, a team sport that had an individual uh, direction on it, I was responsible for my own skills. Mm-hmm. and my being less skilled at something didn't impact the rest of the team. So for me, being part of an individual type sport was more valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for um, the, the, the a parent, coaching a parent team, it's really nice to be able to acknowledge each individual athlete and what their skills, what they bring to the table, what their physical skills are, but also what their, their team skills are, what their volunteer desires are, what their what their values are, because all of these come together to build a team and to build a group of people who are willing and wanting to support each other. Now, a little while ago, we talked about the Kingston Y Penguins. We talked about Variety Village, and these institutions cannot survive without fundraising. And you've done a lot of that uh, during your career, and some of it in the water and some of it not in the water. So talk a little bit about the fundraising and some of the money that's needed to run places like this. Um, well, I've, I've raised over a million dollars now for programs for kids with disabilities. Um, I started my fundraising when I was early high school, uh, caroling and going door to door and raising money for muscular dystrophy. My mother uh, was one of the three nurses that started Hospice Kingston. So some of my fundraising uh, was directed to that. And then my passions came together. I've always worked with people with disabilities. And that's when I was able to, to start raising money for that. And, I've, and that, I could never uh, separate which was more important to me. Was it the fundraising or the sport? And they came together so perfectly that I couldn't have one without the other. Um, but both of the organizations that, that I've raised money for, the the Easter, the uh, YMCA of Eastern Ontario and Variety Village, could not do the important work they're doing without financial support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really important that everybody choose something that's really close to their heart and make a determined effort to support that charity financially or physically. Some people don't have the means to support a charity financially, but we all have the ability to give back. So if there's something you're passionate about, find a way to give back. You've been doing this a long time. And if we go back to... I think you just called me old. (laughs) I was... (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm old. You're not. You started doing this when you jumped up in bed and pulled that book off the shelf to look into it and started setting that first goal. And I'm wondering, after having done this for a number of years, what are your goals now going forward? What turns your crank as you get up every day? Right now, my goal is to help my athletes choose and work towards their goals. Um, but I've also spent a lot of time recently in mentorship roles. Uh, I had the opportunity to mentor a number of coaches from the Caribbean as they work to help their athletes compete at the Paralympic Games. 
Um, I, I've worked a lot with uh, coaches uh, and specifically female coaches across the country. So I see myself continuing doing what I do, but also taking a stronger role in mentorship and finding ways that I can share the messages that I learned throughout my open water swimming career, uh, throughout my, my coaching career, specifically as a coach of athletes with disabilities, and hoping that others can learn some of the things that, that, I, have, uh, that I can share with them. Um, one of the things I'm very proud of is I was um, uh, presented with an honorary doctorate from Queen's University in Kingston as uh, part of uh, as part of a, a program where they were investigating transformational co coaching, and um, I was working with Jean Cote and his team, and they identified that there was a uniqueness to how I was coaching, the way I spoke to my athletes. And it fit within the messages that they were trying to present um, that growth mindset is so important in coaching. It's not about winning medals. It's not about personal bests even. It's, it's, it's all the life lessons we can learn from sport and how important a strong, positive uh, coach can, can impact the lives of our young people lifelong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Vicki, I wish you all the best as you continue to move ahead. And I know there are a lot of children out there who have and continue to appreciate the skills you have passed along to them. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Our guest in this episode has been marathon swimmer and coach Vicki Keep. And to all of you listening on the other side of the speakers, thanks for listening and we'll talk soon. The theme music for the podcast is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian podcast at gmail.com. For details on upcoming guests, follow us on Facebook. The Kingstonian podcast is hosted by Dave Cunningham and produced in Kingston, Ontario, Canada.